Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. We're so happy to be back with you after a two-week break for the holidays. And you know, it's interesting how the end of the year is a great time for self-reflection, appreciating the good things in your life, but at the same time, pondering the idea of renewal. Are there things in your life that you want to change? As I was mulling over these questions over the last couple of weeks and thinking about what Case would be covering for this week's episode... I was reminded of where I was back in 2019, which brings me to the investigation you are about to hear today. Because this case had such a huge impact on me. It absolutely was the catalyst back in 2019 for my decision to jump into the world of true crime podcasting in the new year of 2020. Back then I had experienced an epiphany while binging my very first true crime podcast, which was a deep dive into the Susan Cox Powell case. As a human being and a storyteller, I was horrified, disgusted, angry, sad, as I listened to the shocking details of Susan's life and her disappearance in 2009. To be honest, I almost couldn't believe what I was hearing. Murder, domestic violence, greed, pornography, depravity, manipulation, religion. Because when it comes to the disappearance of Susan Cox Powell, this case is the worst of the worst. But at the same time, I was totally awestruck by the power of her story. That Susan, despite coming from a loving family with loads of friends and a huge support system from her church, essentially on the surface, she had so many people in her life who cared deeply about her, would have done anything to help her. And still, given her circumstances, she felt trapped, powerless to escape an abusive relationship out of fear for her children and herself. Which is why cases like these are so hard to hear, but are so important to tell. Because shining a light on the insidious nature of domestic violence and its spawn, coercive control, which is the slow and methodical mental and emotional breakdown that Susan endured by a toxic partner whose humiliations, intimidations, Financial bullying and nitpicking had ultimately left her isolated to the point of where even though she had so many people in her life that she could have turned to, that Josh had been able to isolate her. And when you know the facts of this case, it's clear that given a set of circumstances, this could really happen to anyone. Because when Susan tried to push back, threatening a divorce, Uh, this is me. July 29th, 2008. It is 12.33, mountain time. Covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and 
live happily ever after as much as that's possible. But everything wouldn't be okay. Welcome to Criminal Mischief. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to episode 64, What Happened to Susan Cox Powell? It was the fall of 2000, and 24-year-old Josh Powell had decided to host a party at his apartment in Tacoma, Washington, which is about 30 minutes away from Seattle. Now, Josh's party wasn't your typical 20-something bash. It was a wholesome mixer for young people who were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Among the invited guests was 19-year-old Susan Cox. Susan and Josh had met at a class at the LDS Church. Susan was a deeply religious young woman. She'd been raised in the church and was one of four girls to loving parents, Charles and Judy Cox. Charles was a pilot and Judy had stayed home to raise the kids. Growing up, Susan was a bright, loving, clever girl with high hopes and big dreams. But if you were to ask those closest to her what her greatest ambition in life was, she would say to be a wife and mother. So Josh was five years older than Susan, but that night at the party, those sparks flew. Josh and Susan were smitten with each other, and their infatuation was immediate and intense. After the party, essentially every minute, that Susan wasn't either attending cosmetology school or working her part-time retail job, she was over at Josh's apartment. And two months after Josh's dinner party, he would propose to Susan, who accepted. Susan's parents were less than thrilled. They encouraged Susan not to rush into marriage with Josh. Susan believed that she and Josh shared the same values, that they both came from big Mormon families, and that they wanted the same things in life. And it was true. Stephen and Terika, Josh's parents, were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, when they had gotten married. But during their marriage, Stephen began to sour on the idea of religion. And over time, he began to openly mock Terika for her beliefs in front of their children. This caused a toxic friction between Terika and Stephen. Terika's LDS faith was sacred to her, for her, it wasn't just attending church services, but being involved in the church community and living their life together in accordance with their faith, which meant setting appropriate boundaries for their five kids. Stephen rejected these ideals, made fun of Terika in front of their children, and encouraged them to do the same. The Powell household became an emotional battleground. Eventually, Stephen and Terika's marriage would end in a bitter divorce. Court documents from that event, filed in 1992, would mention Josh specifically. Terika blamed Stephen for their son's behavior, that he was a troubled teen and had been encouraged by his father for years to openly mock and be disrespectful to his mother, that Josh had purposely killed his siblings' pet gerbils, that he'd threatened his mother with a butcher knife when she asked him to be more respectful, and that he'd tried to commit suicide by hanging himself. Terika would say that Josh had embraced his father's contempt for women and authority. She also accused Stephen of sharing pornography with his three teenage sons. Stephen would lob his own accusations against his wife, saying that she studied herbs and natural healing and mixed New Age mysticism with Mormonism, accusing her of practicing witchcraft. Which is all to say, during Josh's courtship with Susan, his alleged contempt for women and violent tendencies 
were not on display. He was sweet and loving towards Susan, and when he proposed, she was over the moon, believing that Josh was exactly what she was looking for in a husband. In April of 2001, Susan and Josh were married in the LDS Temple in Portland, Oregon. But despite a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Washington and the fact that he was a computer whiz, from the very beginning, Josh had issues holding down a job. In fact, he had lost his job shortly after they had gotten married, prompting the newlyweds to temporarily move in with Josh's dad, Stephen, who lived in nearby Puyallup, Washington. Susan was not prepared for what she would have to endure after they moved in. First of all, it was tight quarters. Susan and Josh had to fashion a makeshift room in the middle of the living room, which obviously was uncomfortable, especially when it became clear to her that Josh's dad would be constantly taking pictures and recording videos of her. Stephen would literally follow her around the house with a handheld camcorder. In these home videos that Stephen would take of his daughter-in-law, you can see a dynamic playing out. Susan's reaction to her ever-present father-in-law and his lens capturing her from every angle. It's like she wants to believe it's innocent, that maybe he's just excited, that he has a passion for photography and videography, that he loves his family and wants to document every minute of it. Stephen's obsession with Susan went beyond infatuation, the extent of which wouldn't become known until much later. He would tape hours of himself on video where he would monologue on and on about his love and lust for Susan. He would stalk her around the house and with his high-power lens record her every move without her knowledge, zooming in on parts of her body that he would later use for his own sexual gratification. When Susan was aware of him filming her, he's commenting on her body. And knowing that they're living there to save money, it's like she has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide, nowhere to escape this really creepy father-in-law who believed that he was entitled to do whatever he wanted with his camera, that he could say whatever he wanted because he had convinced himself that Susan was secretly in love with him and that when he captured her everyday actions of sitting down at a desk or getting into a car and he would zoom in to a tiny speck of her lingerie that would just accidentally be exposed as she was getting in or sitting down, that that moment in time was actually her way of showing him that she wanted him too. Susan knew that her father-in-law was acting inappropriately, and she shared her concerns with Josh. She wanted him to do something about it, but he didn't do anything. Stephen kept a secret journal and a trove of video recordings and photos of Susan. In this hoard, he had a small mirror which he used to spy on her while she used the bathroom. He would steal her underwear and pantyhose to masturbate with, which he would film himself doing that. He even collected her used feminine products, hair, and toenail clippings. He even posted these crazy love songs online about Susan under a pseudonym. Science. You came along 
The obsession would come to a head in 2003, when Stephen was so overwrought with desire that he confessed his love for her when they were driving in a car together. This conversation was captured without Susan's knowledge on Stephen's video recorder. It'd be great to go to Colorado and, and see a different part of the U.S., you know? Yeah. Susan's making small talk with her father-in-law. By this time, she's already made it clear to Josh and her family she doesn't feel comfortable being alone with Stephen. Here are a few snippets of that conversation where Stephen blindsides Susan, saying, I've really fallen in love with you. For the last year and a half, you're about the only thing I can think about. Maybe I'm interpreting something that I shouldn't be interpreting. Um, you know, and it just, for example, when we were sitting on the couch, it just felt like you were very, um, you know, I mean, I was extremely aroused, and I think you were somewhat aroused, at least I thought. We can imagine how upsetting this conversation must have been for Susan. Remember, she comes from a deeply religious family where you're taught to respect your elders. But Susan stands her ground. I don't know where you're going with this. But Susan, I don't... I, I, my, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I'm... Where I'm married to your son, and I should just be the daughter-in-law. I know. Stephen, not happy with her response, tries to turn the situation back on her. He brings up a situation where he filmed her showing him that her legs had recently been waxed. And she's like, I'm sorry, and I can't undo the past. For her, it was nothing more than she was excited about getting her legs waxed. But for Stephen, he still didn't want to believe that she didn't share his feelings. From the audio recording, two things come through. Susan had been enduring this situation, as she stated from the beginning, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. But at the end of the day, she made it clear that she wanted him to stop. Susan would share this conversation with Josh. She said that she wanted to get away from Stephen. And eventually, they would move to West Valley City, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City in 2004. They told the family that the move was for job opportunities. But for Susan, it was a chance to get away from Stephen. But even after they moved, Susan felt betrayed by Josh. He didn't even stand up to his father. Instead, he allowed Stephen to convince him that it was Susan's fault, that she had misrepresented his advances. Josh would inflame the situation further by regularly having these long conversations over the phone with his dad, knowing how much it upset Susan, because Stephen during this time was still making advances. He still believed that Susan was secretly in love with him. Josh's behavior hurt Susan to the core, and she became convinced that Stephen's endgame was to cause so much conflict in her marriage because Stephen believed that he would ultimately have Susan for himself. This dysfunctional triangle between Susan, Stephen, and Josh would be documented in Susan's journal entries. And something else was troubling Susan. Josh's complete rejection of religion. A toxic repeat of his parents' marriage. Remember, Josh first met Susan at an LDS mixer that he hosted at his apartment. He and Susan had married at the LDS temple. And yet, 
Like his father, Josh started to become disillusioned in his own faith. When Susan and Josh moved to Utah, she got a job in banking and Josh worked as a real estate agent in other jobs. In 2005, Susan had her first child, Charlie. Then came Braden in 2007. Susan yearned to have more children and to be in a financial position to stay at home with her kids. But her dream wasn't an option and Susan continued to work at Wells Fargo. In fact, she was the main breadwinner, but Josh controlled all the money in the household. He pinched her pennies, belittling her if she spent too much money on food and essentials. Susan confronted Josh. She told him that she wanted to have some control over her own money, that it was really important to her to give a monthly tithing to the church. His response was fast and cruel. He accused her of being a religious fanatic he also insisted that they get rid of their second vehicle because he said it cost too much and that they should share their minivan, which he mostly drove. Susan was reduced to riding her bike around and walking when he had the vehicle. But there was always enough money in the budget for Josh to buy extravagant things for himself. High-powered computers, stereo equipment, remote control cars, and expensive tools. Ultimately, Josh's spending led to him filing for bankruptcy in 2007 he was more than $200,000 in debt. By 2008, Susan had become desperate. The threatening arguments with her husband had made her fear for her very life. On June 28th, she wrote a letter addressed to her family and friends and placed it in her safety deposit box that only she had access to. In this letter, Susan writes, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, adding, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Susan explained that she had given Josh an ultimatum to start treating her better, or she would file for divorce. According to Susan's letter, his response was to threaten her, saying, quote, there will be no lawyers, only a mediator, and I will ruin you. He added, you, Susan, would be destroyed, and your life would be over, and the boys will not grow up with a mom and dad. In this letter, Susan stated that if anything happened to her, she wanted her dad, Chuck, to have control over her children. She expressed concern about the more than $1 million life insurance policy that was in her name. A month later, Susan would speak to a divorce attorney who advised her to take a video documenting the couple's assets. Uh, this is me, July 29th, 2008. It is 12.33, mountain time. Um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Charlie, say hi. In this video, Susan goes over all the remote control cars he's bought. Oh, there's his RC car, pretty pimped out. <laughs> See that stuff? I think he's got probably a 3,000 worth of supplies in the RC car world. The souped up computers he's obsessed with. This is Josh's computer and there's some type of backup device and speakers. And here's the kind of pimping out stuff he's done to his computer. He built it himself. I think there's like five hard drives, something about digging raids. 
There's those for all the computer geeks. She mentions the bankruptcy in April of 2007 and adds that once that bankruptcy was complete, he went out and opened up a Home Depot credit card in Susan's name and charged more than $1,000. Miter saw a utility vehicle, MSUV, and there is a shop vac. This is all stuff bought in a year or less through Home Depot. On my credit, Josh bought a lot of stuff and then he had to bankrupt it. And then he bought a little bit more on my credit. As she goes around the house, her little boy is following her in the background. And it's ominous when you hear her voice saying, Covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. In this video, she sort of shifts her eyes when she says she hopes they will live happily ever after. You can hear the resignation in her voice. Remember, just a month before that, she put that letter in her safety deposit box. By 2009, Susan was 28 years old, married with two kids. Her dream of being a stay-at-home mom hadn't materialized. Her husband, Josh, had attained and lost many jobs. It was always somebody else's fault. By then, she knew how he bristled at authority. Despite working a full-time job, Susan had very little control over her own money. And she was in the grips of a toxic, emotionally abusive, and controlling relationship. Even so, she was an amazing mom to her two little boys. And she was very active in her church and had a wide circle of friends. From the outside looking in, few could imagine the kind of hell that Susan was really going through. Josh's brand of abuse wasn't physical. It was a coercive control. And even though Susan had threatened him with divorce, had written the letter and documented their belongings, 15 months had passed and life at the Powell home hadn't improved. Susan felt trapped. She loved her boys more than anything, and though she feared for her life, she felt powerless to leave Josh, terrified of what he would do. She felt stuck. Which is why on Sunday, December 6th, 2009, Susan did what she always had. She got up and endured. She got herself and the boys ready to go to church. Josh, as usual, didn't join them. On most Sundays, Susan and the boys would often walk home. But on that day, Josh actually went to pick them up. Remember, he'd insisted that they get rid of their second vehicle to save money, so they shared the minivan that he mostly drove. It was around noon when a neighbor, Giovanna, came to visit Susan after church. Giovanna had offered to help her untangle some snarled yarn, and when she arrived, she was surprised as she walked through the door to find Josh actually cooking pancakes for the family. He usually refused to cook. Later in the day, Susan got up complaining that she didn't feel well and went to take a nap. It was around the time that Giovanna went home, around 5 p.m. She would be the last person outside of Josh, Charlie, and Braden to see Susan Cox Powell alive. The following morning, a Monday, was a work day for both Susan and Josh. So it was a shock when Susan and Josh didn't drop the boys off at daycare before going off to work. The daycare provider was also a really good friend of Susan's. And when the couple didn't arrive with Charlie and Brayden, she was instantly worried. So she called Josh's mom, who lived in the area. Terica and Josh's sister, Jennifer, immediately drove to Susan and Josh's suburban home in West Valley City. The single-story home 
at the end of a cul-de-sac on West Sarah Circle looked deserted. Terika and Jennifer pounded on the front door. Nobody answered. And they immediately noticed something else. It had snowed overnight, and the fresh blanket of snow on the driveway didn't have any tire tracks leading away from the garage. Terika and Jennifer frantically called Susan and Josh's places of employment and were told that neither of them had showed up that morning for their scheduled shifts. So mother and daughter called 911. Police rushed to the house. A couple and their two young children missing, the no-shows at work and daycare, the abandoned house with no tire tracks in the driveway. The immediate concern was that they could potentially be victims of carbon monoxide poisoning inside the house. Fearing the worst, the officers asked for permission from Josh's family to smash open a window so they could get inside the house, which they did. No one was home. But the officers noticed something strange. A wet spot on one of the couches, and two box fans were positioned to blow at that spot. The family's sole vehicle, the minivan, was gone. But Susan's purse, wallet, and ID were still at the house. No one had a clue as to where the family of four could be. As the day wore on, all the family could do was to keep trying their cell phones and contact everyone they knew, looking for Josh and Susan and their children. In the afternoon, Josh would finally answer his cell phone. It was the neighbor, Giovanna. She was frantic and telling him that everyone thought he and his family were missing. Josh would tell her that he was on his way back from a camping trip with the boys, and that no, Susan wasn't with him. She was at work. That he was on his way to pick her up there. When Josh finally pulled up to his driveway with Charlie and Braden, he told the family and police that were there that he had no idea where Susan was, that he'd just been to her work to pick her up like he always did at 5.30, and that's when he found out that she hadn't been at work all day. It was then that detectives would ask Josh to come down to the station for an interview to try to piece together what possibly could have happened to Susan. Josh agreed, but insisted on bringing along five-year-old Charlie and three-year-old Brayden. Josh explained to detectives that he'd left Susan sleeping after midnight the night before, that he'd brought Charlie and Brayden camping to the Pony Express Trail in the Utah desert, which raised some eyebrows. Why would you take little children on a camping trip during a blizzard in sub-freezing temperatures after midnight, especially when you were scheduled to be at work in the morning, and so was your wife, who relied on you for a ride? The interview that night didn't last long. The boys were fussy, and Josh was asked to come back the next day without the children. Even though Josh's wife is missing, he doesn't show up to talk to investigators the next day until around lunchtime. He's wearing a black leather jacket, a black snow hat, a black t-shirt, and blue jeans. All three hours of this interview were made available online through the Cold Podcast. In the beginning of the interview, Josh seems nervous and anxious, emotional when the detective asks to take a look at his hands and points out some nicks on his fingers. I think that's new, that's new, they just get bigger, those are new, that's new. Like I say, they, there's three new ones, they just keep getting bigger and bigger. Okay. Josh seems more concerned about himself and speaking with an attorney than helping police find his wife. Because I simply just want to, yeah, we spoke last night, but we didn't go into any, you know, a whole lot of details. Okay, I have a lot of questions still. All right, we need to find your wife. I would think that you would want to, 
you know, help me find your wife. What, what kind of questions are they still? There's quite a few questions. I want to go over, um, you know, all of her friends again. I want to go over who she talks to. I want to go over her work history. I want to go over her where you guys have lived. There's all kinds of things. Okay. Do you, do you not want to find I, your wife? Yeah, I do. You do? Yeah. Okay. Why are you making this so difficult then? Well, no, let's go. If, if that's the kind of questions, I guess it's fine. We'll just try and, you know. What are you worried about? What are you concerned about? You guys, you know, have implied some things, and so it concerns me. We've implied what? Well, you've implied that my hands have some kind of defensive wounds on them just okay. because they're all cut up, and that's just, just the way they are. Okay, so there shouldn't be anything you need to worry about then, right? I mean, if I have dry hands and my hands were nicked up like that because they're dry hands, I don't think I'd be worried about it. Well, go ahead and ask your question. I mean, do, you know, do we not have a job to do? No, go ahead and, uh, by the way, um, yeah, go ahead and ask the questions. Okay, you understand, you don't have to be here, all right? And you okay. need to understand that. If you want to leave, you can leave at any time. All right. You're not under arrest, I'm not detaining you, okay? If you don't want to be here, you can leave. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to talk. Well, I'm just I simply saying talk, that I want to find your wife. I just want to talk, but I'm getting scared. Well, I mean, if you haven't done nothing wrong, Josh, if you didn't do anything wrong, there's nothing to be scared about. Right? Well, I'm scared about the possibilities. Okay. What's happened? Well, I'm... I'm Worried about possibilities of what happened to because I have no idea where she's at, and you don't either. The detective probes further. He's like, hey, I need to know about your wife so I can understand where to look for her. Is it uh, that you and, and Susan are interested in? Well, I, I like woodworking mm-hmm. and art. Usually I like working on the house, you know, fixing the buildings, the deck, and things like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Susan likes art. She likes what? She, she likes art. Oh, art. Okay. She likes crocheting. Um, she likes Facebook. <laughs> if you can call, if you call that a hobby. Yeah. She likes her kids and, you know, being with them. Well, and obviously I do too. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we just like to go to usually the cheap places. Not always, but uh, we got a zoo membership. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we come there about four or five times or six or I don't know. So those are some hobbies that she likes. She enjoys. Oh, and we go. We eat out on kind of a regular basis. What? Sometimes we eat out. Oh, okay. A little bit more often than we should. Yeah. Well, don't we always like that? Eating out always tastes better, don't it? Yeah, kind of. It does. Must be a good or bad restaurant. And they usually put enough fat in it that we don't put in it that it's better. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's also cheaper and sometimes because mm-hmm. we go to El Taco yeah. on Tuesday and we can eat our whole family for five bucks. Really? Wow. Four seventy. Um, well, what are some other things? Four, that... five, four or five bucks yeah. less tax. What are some other things that she likes to do? I mean, we talked about some hobbies. What are some other things that she likes to do? Um, makeup. She has a club or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not a 
She has friends that she does it with. During the interview, Josh gives wishy-washy answers. He can't remember exactly where they camped, doesn't remember the car wash that he visited, or if he paid with cash or credit. He can't remember exactly what they did on Saturday night and doesn't 100% remember much other than that he took the boys camping at around 1.30 or 2. Talked to him about uh, taking the boys to do some work, try out the new generator, you know. She went to bed, and I finished packing and loaded them up. And then we just, you know, it was just like the morning routine. I just and tried to see them. But so when um, they cleaned the couch, she wanted to, what, was the couch dirty? Was there a stain on the couch or something? Or? It's just all the fevers and... It's not from kids who wipe their nose on it. Okay. They just they just do brutal things to the furniture. It's like the other couch needs it too. Okay. And when you talk to um, Susan about taking the kids and doing s'mores and generator, tell me more details on that conversation. Um, she just, you know, I told her that I wanted to, and she just said, well, we have a heater. Can't take the boys out in the cold without heater. I'm like, yeah, I got my generator. That was it. Basically, I mean, it wasn't a long conversation. She didn't uh, inquire as to when you'd be back, when you're going, where well, you're going. Her, I told her I'd be back. So I'll just come <clears> back tomorrow morning. The detective presses him about why he didn't tell his employer or the daycare provider that he wouldn't be at work. And Josh would say that he mistakenly thought that it was Sunday and not Monday. Did you make arrangements? Uh, did you guys... Uh, Talk about arrangements for her getting to work. I was thinking it was going to be Sunday, and I didn't even think about what. And her? I guess it didn't cross her mind at the time. Okay. And what time What time did you say that she went to bed? Probably 12.30ish. Was there anything said before she went to bed? Any? You guys talk about anything else before she went to sleep? Just talking. Were you concerned with the snow, knowing that there was a snowstorm coming in? Um, yeah, I was... In a minivan? Actually, the minivan handles like a 4 by 4 Okay. <laughs> you can go some serious off-roading with that minivan. Okay. Well, I mean, wasn't that a concern with the, the storm coming in and it was already snowing? It wasn't already snowing when I left. No, it was snowing when you got out it there. Was, yeah. And so I was watching the road, and I'm going, how thick is this going to get? Mm-hmm. You know, are we going to get stuck? <coughs> and then I thought, well, you know, what are the odds that it'll be anything that'll get us stuck out there? Mm-hmm. And we have the generator and the heaters, and so it's like, well, it's pretty risky. Yeah. Already here, what the heck? Josh's answers are monotonous, and he shows no sense of urgency. Since his wife's been missing... He himself has not really done anything to try to find her. I thought you said you had a number for her supervisor. I thought I did, but I oh. couldn't find it in my phone, so I, I ended up calling to try to get in. Okay. Well, I haven't had a chance to call it yet. The only reason I'm asking is if you had heard anything different than what they told me. You know what I mean? With you being her husband, maybe they would tell you something that they didn't tell us. You know what I mean? Right. So That's you, a good idea. Get, you haven't talked to him. Okay. I was actually, I've been trying to track down the number, and I did finally get it. And you did? Okay. But I just haven't had a chance to call. Okay. I was going to call. When Is there anybody were... else that you've uh, called to follow up on to see where she's at? I just called her dad. You called her dad? And your attorney? 
The detective tried a different tack. He's like, why would Susan leave? Josh acknowledged that Susan wouldn't leave her boys and that she had no enemies. So no enemies, nobody that would want to harm her, nobody that would want to that's mad at her that you know of. I can't think of anyone. Has she ever left the boys before? I mean, during the day, but not, not any extended period. Why is it she left this time? I don't know. I mean, she only, you know, you know, if it's her day off, she sleeps in. And if it's her day to work, she gets up and goes to work. Right. I just can't even think of, of what is going on. Ultimately, Josh would say that he wanted to leave after the detective read him his Miranda rights. The detective explained that he wasn't under arrest, but that he wanted to ask Josh some tougher questions. You don't consider yourself a suspect, and we need to get this figured out. I have other questions. I have a couple of other questions that I want to ask you, okay? Um, And in order for me to ask you these questions and then ask you to do something else, I have to read you your Miranda rights. What Josh didn't know was that while he was being interviewed, Another investigator was conducting a child forensic interview with his son, five-year-old Charlie. I just spoke with some of our other detectives, and you're going to have to wait here with us. You're not going to go anywhere. Um, one of our detectives just uh, interviewed your children, and uh, your children are telling our detectives that uh, mom went with you guys last night, and then she didn't come back. Next time on part two of what happened to Susan Cox Powell. Charlie would drop a bombshell. So your mom stayed at the park. Where did she stay at the park? Um, she, Do you know where? She stayed at the National National Park. Do you know where at the park? No? No. She, my mom stayed where a crystal park. Where what are? Where crystals are. The crystals? Crystals? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Crystals? Yeah. Your mom stayed where the crystals are? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. If you feel you are or could be in a domestic violence situation, please know that you're not alone. There is help. Call 1-800-799-7233. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.